Amen. All right, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 2. We finished in verse 16. We're going to start with verse 17 this evening. All right, now, some of you may have been rather shocked last week with uh, Romans, chapter 2, as we dealt with the theoretical salvation by works. But we're going to continue with it tonight, and you're going to see the full picture of it. Now, we looked at several passages of Scripture last week. The one that was so difficult here is chapter 2, verse 6, 7, 8, 9. We'll review that. He said, He'll render to every man according to his deeds. So men are going to be judged, he said, according to their deeds. This is not a passage about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll notice that Christ is not mentioned, the Holy Spirit's not mentioned, salvation's not mentioned anywhere in this chapter 1, chapter 2, and on into part of chapter 3. He's talking about natural revelation. He'll judge each man according to his deeds. Then he says in verse 7, 2-7, To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, comma, eternal life. That is, eternal life will be the reward of those who follow through with that. Then he says, verse 8, But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, comma, indignation and wrath. In other words, God's judgment is just as fair and just as the natural man could imagine it to be. A man says, I want to meet God on terms of justice. I don't want to be responsible for religion or any kind of belief system. I just want to meet God and get my fair share. Uh, I'll do the best I can. I'll live a good life. And when I meet God, he can judge me according to how I've lived. Paul said, all right, let's examine that. So if you're going to be patient and continue and do well, then fine. God will give you eternal life. But if you're contentious and you don't obey the truth that you know, that you hold, then there'll be indignation and wrath. Now Paul is comfortable allowing that admission to the sinner because he knows that no sinner has come up to that level even of his own conscience. In other words, Paul is comfortable admitting to the concept that you would have eternal life if you obeyed all the truth that you held. He's comfortable with that because Paul knows where he's going. And he's going to uncover evidence that proves that no man has done that. So Paul's concept, his theory here, is to bring all men to a personal conviction of sin. Now in order to do that, he's not going to start off with his conclusion. His conclusion being, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If he starts off with his conclusion, men will argue, yes, I may have sinned, but I haven't sinned that badly. Or they may argue, yes, I used to sin, but I don't sin anymore. Or they may argue that maybe I sinned, but I didn't know what I was doing. Or what about those people who've never heard? Or what about other religions? A man will go on with an innumerable amount of excuses that somehow explain that man cannot be held accountable because he either doesn't know, he's not aware, or that if he is held accountable, that there is more goodness there than there is badness, so it wouldn't be right for God to damn him. Now, Paul knows where men are thinking, knows where they're going. He's been out there speaking with people. He understands them. So Paul is, like a lawyer, is arguing his case. And in arguing his case, he starts right where the natural man is thinking. And he says, okay, if you want to be justified by the way you live, let's give that a try. Let's give that a whirl. I will admit to that as a theoretical possibility. Let's see where it will take us. And so then he argues through and shows that how through natural revelation men have come to understand about God. That men have a knowledge of even the eternal power and Godhead through natural revelation, through the things that they see in nature. 
He points out that through these things that men see that they are now a law unto themselves. He says there in chapter 2 that their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another in verse 15. In other words, a man has this sense of right and wrong that he holds. He has this understanding of what he ought to do. And in the process of holding this a little bit of truth or this great amount of truth, whatever the degree of truth is that he holds, in the process of holding it, the man's mind is active accusing or excusing other people based on this concept of right and wrong. And so the man reveals his own personal understanding of right and wrong as he judges other people. So Paul raises this list of sins and he calls us to judge. He said, now you that judge others, he said, do you do the law? Do you do the law by which you've judged others? Have you been successful where you've blamed others for failing? And so he has dealt strictly with the heathen man, not the Jew, not the Christian, but the heathen man, the man of another religion who's never been exposed to biblical Judaism or biblical Christianity. And so he's taken us through the process and he comes down to verse 212, for as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. As many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. So he said, when the day of judgment comes, God's going to judge those who've had exposure to the law. He's going to judge them according to that exposure. And those who've not had an exposure to the law, God is going to judge them and the law won't be brought to play. He said they will be condemned, but it won't be based on their failure to obey a law they never heard. It will be based on their failure to live up to their own understanding of right and wrong. You see, no one who's clear thinking could argue that that was unjust because God has as many scales for judging the sinner as there are sinners. God's judgments are custom tailor-made to each individual based on the amount of knowledge that that man holds. So he says, verse 13, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. So he said to you Jews, you heard the law, you think you're right with God because you heard the law. He said, I want to tell you something. It's not hearing it that makes you right with God. It's doing it. So he said, you need to do it. And then if you're a Gentile and you do it, then you will be blessed of God. If you're a Jew, you'll be blessed of God. If you know the law and obey the law, you'll be blessed of God. If you don't know the law, but by nature you do the things contained in the law, then you'll be treated as if you knew the law. He says, for the Gentiles which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts. He said, this Gentile which never had the Ten Commandments, nonetheless, when you talk with him, you realize that he has a consciousness of the law just as if he'd been exposed to it. He says, verse 16, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, he did not say that in that day God will judge men according to the gospel. In other words, that the the judgment will be a judgment as to how they related to the gospel. That's not what he says. He doesn't say that the gospel is going to be the criteria of judgment that day. He says that men are going to be judged by Jesus Christ. And he said that's a fact that men will be judged by Jesus Christ. A fact that is according to my gospel. In other words, Paul said, according to this body of truth that I hold and teach, according to these things that I'm teaching you, it is a fact that all men are going to be judged by Jesus Christ. That's what he said. He didn't say they'd be judged as to how they responded to Jesus Christ, but they'll be judged by Jesus Christ. If they've never heard about Christ, the judgment has nothing to do with Christ. It has to do with how they've lived, whether they've obeyed what they've heard or whether they had. You say, well, now that sounds to me like you're providing a possible way for men to be saved without Jesus Christ. Theoretically, yes. In other words, Paul has theoretically made that proposal. 
Just as Jesus theoretically made that proposal, when a man came to him and said, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, If you will enter into life, keep the commandments. You see, Jesus was offering that man salvation that had nothing to do with believing the gospel. And the man said, uh, which commandments? Jesus said, thou shalt kill, commit adultery, steal. He said, these have kept my youth up. He said, but what lack I yet? In other words, this man knew that there was a need, there was a lack, there was an empty, there was a void down in his own being, and he knew that keeping the commandments was not sufficient to fill that void. And so he said, I'm lacking something. Jesus said to him, okay, if you want to be perfect, believe the gospel. Is that what he said? No. Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, you've kept the commandments, but you want to complete this thing, then sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. And then take up your cross and follow me. So Jesus gave that man a way of salvation that you wouldn't dare give someone today from the pulpit. Think about making a gospel track. How to get to heaven. What must I do to have eternal life? The first thing you must do is keep the commandments according to Jesus Christ. And the second thing you must do is give everything you've got away and give it to the poor and then become a vagabond preacher. That's basically what Jesus told him to do. Now, that wouldn't be a very clear gospel, would it? That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it is a way of salvation according to Jesus Christ, which is theoretical. In other words, that man did not meet all of those conditions, and as a result of not meeting them, he realized his lack, and he sought something else, which in time, when Christ came and died, he would have discovered the Lord Jesus Christ. A certain lawyer, uh, Luke chapter 10, 25 and 29, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? The man said, What shall I do? Jesus said, What does the Old Testament say? He answered and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all the heart, soul, mind, body, and strengthen thy neighbor as thyself. And that's what the Old Testament said. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. The question of living is having eternal life. So the man said, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said, what does the Old Testament law say? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and love your neighbors yourself. Jesus said, that's right. Do it and you'll have eternal life. Folks, that's works salvation. That's salvation by doing something. You've got to do something. You've got to do what you ought to do, which is oh, love God and love your fellow man and do what's right. And Jesus said, if you do that, you'll have life. And you see, when you pull things out of their context, you can get pretty confused. That's why people say, well, you can teach anything you want to out of the Bible. Yeah, if you just read it once a month. But it's just like a conversation. If you took an hour's conversation, you could pull most anything you want to out of someone's conversation. You've got to start with them at the beginning and follow it all the way through and listen so you know what they're saying. So Jesus is preparing this lawyer for the gospel message. You say, well, why would he do that? Why would God offer a theoretical salvation? There's no salvation at all. When my wife and I were engaged to be married during those six days, we went down to Fred P. Gaddis to buy her a ring. We found one, I think it was $6 for a gold band. So we, we were down there getting that ring, and out front was a table uh, oh, just average looking table, a little cloth on top of it. And right in the middle of it sat a pretty brick, a gold brick. But it was kind of tapered brick. It looked like the keystone uh, laying upside down and uh, just laying right there on the table. 
And standing behind it was a fellow with a gun. And there was a sign hung on the table that said, if you can pick it up with one hand, you can have it. Well, now, uh, back in those days, I was pretty tough, you know. So I looked at that and I thought, now, I can do it because I could take a pair of bathroom scales and squeeze them to over 300 pounds. And so when I looked down at that brick, I thought, boy, I'm gonna, this is going to be a good wedding present right here for me. And so I looked down at that brick and I said, you kidding? He said, no, it's really, I said, uh, who's, who's sponsoring this? He said, Fort Knox. Well, now, Fort Knox is where they keep all the, the whole three bars of gold that we've got. And so I said, well, why are you making the offer? And he said, well, we, we just uh, want people to appreciate the gold that's there in Fort Knox. And I said, well, okay, here goes. And uh, I said, now, if I pick it up, you're going to give it to me, right? He said, right. So I reached down and I grabbed a hold of it. And that wasn't greased or anything, but it was polished real smooth. And so I started trying to get a hold of it. And there's no way you could just grip it because it was tapered a little bit toward the top, see? And the corners were rounded everywhere. So I kept trying to pick it up, and I couldn't. So I thought, all right, I know how to do that. Just turn the thing over and get your hand under it, and then you can pick it up. So, so I started trying to turn it over, and I was scooting it all around on the table. I said, look, is there a magnet under this table or something? This got some. He said, no. I said, it's, it's, it's just sitting there. So I scooted it all around on the table, and I tried to turn it over. And I, I, I worked, man, until I was up in the sweat. I'd gone all the way around that table four or five times. I was sweating. My blood veins popped out on the side of my head. And... I said, has anybody ever done this? He said, no, grinned. Now, I know there's probably some people a lot stronger than me tried it, you know. I said, then why are you offering it? He said, well, just so you'll appreciate the weight and the value of gold. I said, well, I appreciate the weight of it now. And I had to walk off and leave it laying there. Now, was that a real offer that he was going to give me that gold bar if I could pick it up? Was it a real offer? Yeah, it was real. Did he expect me to pick it up? No, he didn't. If he had, if I'd have picked it up, that'd probably been the termination of that program that day, you know. But he made the offer knowing I couldn't pick it up to, to cause me to appreciate the weight and so forth of gold. Now, I tried. I tried with everything I had. Before that, if you'd have shown it to me, if I'd have saw someone on television trying to pick it up, I'd have said, well, now, that poor skinny little run, I could do that. Look at all those muscles. They just pumped up the artificial. I could pick it. I was sure I could have picked it up. But I couldn't do it. I tried it. I know I can't. I failed. Now, when God offered salvation by works, when he said, this do and thou shalt live, he was offering for those people that are cocky sure that they could please God by their works. He said, have at it. There it is on the table. If you can do it, it's yours. Pick it up. Eternal life. And so the self-righteous, the religious, and the proud dive in there and lay hold of the law. And they say, I'm going to move this thing, and I'm going to please God, and I'm going to gain eternal life. And after a while, they all fall exhausted and say, has anyone ever gotten to heaven this way, Jesus? No, they haven't. Then why are you making the offer? I just want you to see, when I died, what I paid for. I want you to see, when I finally tell you there's only one way, I want you to know that there's only one way. There's no other way. Not because, theoretically, it's not possible to go another way. It's just because all have sinned and come short. It's just because what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. There was no failure in the offer of the law. There was no weakness in the, the truth of the offer. The weakness was in the flesh to accomplish the task of lifting it. Romans 7.10 says the commandment which was ordained to life 
I found to be unto death. So the commandments, the Ten Commandments and the others that went with it, 613, were ordained to life. Ordained to give life. He said, but I found them to be unto death because I broke them. Now, we won't take the time, but you can mark it down and read Ezekiel 18 when you get the chance. Ezekiel 18 gives you a clear statement of salvation by works. There are some who tell us that people were saved in the Old Testament just like they're saved in the New Testament. That's silly pop theology. In the Old Testament, no one ever lived good enough to be saved. But God did require obedience to the law and repentance in order for a person to be saved. And those who failed to obey God, failed to repent, failed to believe God, those who walked in rebellion or sin or who turned from righteousness to walk in unbelief and rebellion and sin were not saved. Read it for yourself, Ezekiel chapter 18. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Now let's pick up in verse 17 for our text tonight. He's dealt with the Gentile very thoroughly, and he's exposed the Gentile as having failed to obey the law. So now he says in verse 17, Behold, Thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide to the blind, a light to them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has a form of knowledge and of the truth of the law. So he's now addressing the Jew. The Jew has, has readily agreed with Paul about the wickedness of the Gentile up to this point. So now he says, Behold, thou art called a Jew. To a Jew, to be called a Jew meant something more than just his national origin. To be called a Jew, that is to have descended from Jacob, to a Jew was a statement of his superiority. Even today, it's a statement of superiority. I was sitting in Jerusalem less than a year ago as two or three rabbis discussed among themselves at what point the soul came into the Jew. Some said at birth, one said at circumcision, and uh, the other one had another view. I don't remember what it was. But they all agreed together that Gentiles didn't have souls only Jews. And so they went on to discuss about an unpracticing Jew. If a Jew did not practice his religion, did he have a soul? And they agreed that certainly he did. They said if he were circumcised, then he had a soul, even if he didn't go on and practice his Judaism. And so to be a Jew was a statement of superiority. They liked being called by, the, by a name that they construed not only to set them apart, but set them above other men. And then he said, you rest us in the law. You rest in the law. Now, they were not known for doing the law as much as they were for resting in it. In other words, they had found the law was a nice repose. They saw law not as their judge, not as a judge of their conduct, but as a symbol of their superior moral convictions. 
It was a moral status symbol to them, the law. The law became their pillow rather than their personal judge. They copied it, preserved it, argued it, defended it until it was their personal property. They handled it, dissected it, and interpreted it until they became comfortable with it. It no longer waked them in the night to produce periods of confession and repentance. They memorized it to quote at convenient moments. They decorated it and carried it in front of their celebrations. They kissed it, but they did not carry it in their hearts. It was no longer the voice from Mount Sinai. It was now proof of their significance, something tangible by which they could make their boast of God. In boasting, they were comparing themselves with others, others who didn't have the law. With all their forms of observance, they felt superior every time they lit a candle, every time they bowed or prayed or went into the temple or went out. When they looked upon a fellow human being who didn't have the law, they felt superior. We meet people today. I do. I meet people today that have that air about them. It's sometimes rampant in homeschool circles. You meet people who feel superior. They feel superior because they do wisdom searches. They feel superior because they have family devotions. They feel superior because they don't do this or do that. They isolate themselves from the rest of the world. And they feel confident that all the things that they know somehow give them an edge, a special reach on God. And that other people are sinners, but not they. And that's where the Jew was. That's why the word hypocrite and Pharisee has become synonymous with that sect of Judaism that honored and reverenced the law. So, And then he says, verse 18, make your boast of God in verse 18, and you know, you say you know his will. So they boasted of God. They boasted, they said we know his will, and they bragged about what they knew, bragged about how God had worked in their life. Now, they'd received it directly from his hand, had they not? And having received it directly from his hand, did that not prove that they were superior people? Did God ever do that for anyone else? Did he give that law to Gentiles? No, he gave it only to them. And he says, you approve the things that are more excellent. Now, it is a fact that the Jewish society was more excellent than those societies around them in terms of those things God had revealed to them. For instance, a Jew, whenever someone was sick, whenever there was a sickness in a house, and if they went in that house, they touched that person, they touched the contaminated articles in that house, then they were to be unclean. And they had to go out and wash themselves in running water three different times, drying in the sun. And if a person died from a disease in a house, they were to, in some cases, it was leprosy, was to burn the house down. They were to burn the man's clothes up. They were to destroy it. Why? They didn't understand what they were doing or why, but God had given them a revelation of communicable disease. And then they had to relieve themselves where other societies, like in France, even up until two centuries ago, even sooner, would take their, their excrement and dump it out the windows into the street where people would walk. And even in England, up until in recent modern times, they would have troughs down the middle of the street where open sewage would run. Today you can go and you can find a sewage, uh, even where you have sewer systems, you can find countries dumping their sewers out on their crops, on their fields. And you can find them dumping it in their rivers. 
And yet God said to the Jew, he said, when you need to relieve yourself, he said, you take a shovel. You go outside the city limits, dig a hole, do it and put it in the hole and cover it back up and then come back into the city. Now, he said, if you're camped out somewhere, you're in a camping situation and you need to relieve yourself. He said, dig a hole, put it in the hole and cover it up. Now, even during the dark ages in Europe, when people were dying by the hundreds of thousands from plagues and diseases, living right in the same city with them, the Jews didn't die. Now, few would, but they didn't have one out of four, and sometimes one out of two die like others did. It was so obvious that the Jews were escaping the destruction, the plagues of others, that they believed that the Jews must be the cause of it. And they were persecuted when the plagues came because the plagues didn't touch them like it touched other people. Why didn't it? Because they had a superior lifestyle. They had a system given to them by God which proved to them that they were special people. And so they honored those laws and they felt superior because of it. And he said, you approve those things that are excellent because you're instructed out of the law. And he said, you are confident that thou thyself art a guide to the blind, a light to them which sit in darkness. That is, they were confident, they were sincere, they were assured that as recipients and defenders of this law, they were competent guides to these spiritually blind people that dwelt around them. And certainly we look and we say, well, they would have a lot to teach. For instance, they were not to eat the blood of animals and they were not to eat unclean animals. Even right now in the United States, people are coming down with hepatitis and other diseases as a result of eating shellfish. In many countries today, people are sick and they die as a result of eating pigs. And uh, God gave them certain commandments, which when they observed, caused them. He said, I won't put any of these Egyptian diseases on you if you'll obey me and keep my laws. So they were confident that they were a guide. They were light. They felt good about that. The scriptures had prophesied that the Messiah would come and be a light to those that sat in darkness, Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. That light was supposed to reach not only the Jews, but the Gentiles alike. But the Jews had set aside the hope of Messiah as light. And they had interpreted it to mean that they were the light as a nation. So they went around shining their light, but they, what we find later, they put that light under a bushel rather than sit it on the hill for the rest of the world. When the Jew would walk by and find a Samaritan lying in the road beat up, he would walk around the Samaritan rather than dirty himself, make himself unclean by touching him and helping him. Then he says in verse 20, you're an instructor of the foolish. Now, when you know you know more than someone else does, when you know that you're right, when you know that you've got the answer, it's difficult not to be an instructor. So the Jews were instructors to foolish people. What made it so wicked was their arrogant conceit, not just that they knew more, but that the other person was somehow inferior to him because of his lack of knowledge. And he says, you're a teacher of babes. So they would teach young people, children, ignorant people, which has the form of knowledge of the truth of the law. That is, they had the form of knowledge. What form was that? That was Sabbath keeping. Uh, that was the holy days. That was the ceremonial cleansings. That was the not eating this and not eating that. That was the do this and don't do that. That was the form of the law which they had and held. So he said, you have this form which you carry forth. 
they started with the law and added their traditions until they created a national religious system of laws and practices that were designed for public display. It was a hybrid adapted from the original law. It still maintained the framework of truth, but it was molded in their own image. And many things that Jews do today, Orthodox Jews, are not only against the New Testament teaching, they're against Old Testament teaching. For instance, the very idea of a man covering his head, a man putting something on his head when he prays. And yet we find Jews doing that. We find Arabs doing that. We find it's the custom of the East, but it was not a biblical custom. So keep in mind Paul's objective here and the conclusion to which he's drawing. He's trying to show that these Jews, in spite of all these laws that they hold, that they too are sinners. Then he says in verse 21, Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? In other words, in the process of looking down and teaching others, have you questioned whether or not you're living up to it? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Now most of the Jews would have said, of course we don't steal. The priest would have stood up and said, we don't steal. And yet Jesus said in Matthew 23, 14, he said, concerning the priest, he said, you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Now, how did they do that? Husband was sick and dying. They would encourage her to put money in the coffer. They would encourage her to give and they would pray. And then when the husband died and she was upon hard times, they would encourage her to come and give and tithe and place her money in the, in the coffer. And God would bless her. They assured her that she would come into prosperity if she would just contribute. And so for pretense, they made long prayers for this widow woman. In the process, money was flowing into their pockets when they prayed. You know, anytime you see a preacher or a priest who sells the ministry in that indirect way, you know you've got a full-fledged, lying, scheming hypocrite. Anytime a man tells you that if you will give to God and he happens to be in between you and God, that money is going his way, and if you give to God, you'll be blessed, I'd like to see some of them preaching and say, listen, if you'll give to God, God will bless you. We're not going to pass an offering plate. When you leave here, we want you to go out and find some poor person or some needy person and give to God, and God's going to multiply it ten times over. If you'll give to God, God will multiply it, and so I'm going to take everything out of my bank account and pocket tonight, and I'm going to give it to you so God will bless me. I'm going to sell my car. I'm going to take this suit off. I'm going to give you everything I've got, and I'm going to be in a state of paupery, and then I'm going to go out and minister to the poor and God's going to bless us and multiply us and enrich us. And when we get rich, we're going to give that away. And when we get even richer, we're going to give that away. And we will not allow ourselves to own or possess anything because we're going to serve God. So I'm not taking up any offering here tonight. I just want you to go out and give it to the poor. Now I'd start believing some preacher like that. But I'm not going to believe one that tells you to send in your 20 bucks to him and he's going to lay your letter down there and lay his hands on it and pray for it. I just don't buy it. I'm not that stupid. And it, anyone who would send money in in hopes of drawing nigh to God, in hopes of stimulating or stirring someone to pray, you are stupid, to say the least. You are spiritually bankrupt. 
If you think that you're going to buy from God by giving to some wicked, sinful man your money. But that's right where the Pharisees were. The Jews had fallen into that, so they were devouring the widow's house in a pretense of making prayers. Now he says, thou that teachest a man should not steal. Do you steal? There are other ways that they stole. We'll come to that in a moment. He says, verse 22, Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorst idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? He said, you say people shouldn't commit adultery. What about you? Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. He said, you preach against adultery, but do you lust? When Rebecca was in Israel recently, one of those Orthodox Jews with his little tinkly curls hanging down his sweet, shiny cheeks walked up to her and said, would you come to my apartment and have sex with me? She said, what did you say? He said to her in his broken, holy Hebrew accent, would you come to my apartment and have sex with me? So she saw a group of these devout, holy blackbirds standing over to one side and she thought, well, I'll just tell on him. So she ran over to where that group of orthodox men were standing and she said, you know what he said to me? And she started telling on him. And you know what they said to her? They said, there's nothing in the oral law against that. Sound like Bill Clinton. Nothing against that. We don't have any problem with that. That's okay. Now that's orthodox Judaism. Those people you see bending at the waist at that wall and praying to that stone. Christians are enamored today with Judaism. They almost worship Judaism. I want to tell you something. Judaism is bankrupt. It's without God and without hope. It's without life. Ichabod is written across it. God has departed. It is a dead religion. It's no closer to God than is the Mosque of Omar, the Dome of the Rock, the Muslims that worship on the hill not far away. I don't doubt that in Paul's day, conditions were the same. When you look at how Jesus addressed the Pharisees, you realize that it must have been just like it is today. Now, until I went to Jerusalem and walked the streets and sat down and listened to them talk and argue and debate and discuss, until I went up and stood against the wailing wall itself and spoke with those who were bending and bowing, until I went into the synagogue right beside the wailing wall and went back up in there and sat down where they were pulling out the prayer scrolls and kissing them and praying to them, the, the, the scripture wrapped up there. And until I went in there and saw them and spoke with them and listened to them talk, I didn't really have an appreciation for the way Jesus addressed them as generation of vipers, sons of snakes. That the men of Sodom and Gomorrah rise up in judgment and condemn this generation. That your damnation will be greater than those homosexuals of Sodom and Gomorrah. I didn't understand it until I went and spent some time around them. Now, I don't doubt in Paul's day it was just the same. And Paul is telling them, you think you're right with God because you've got this law he said, I want to tell you something, if you don't do it, if you don't do it, then you're no closer to God than the Gentile. Now, when he said you commit sacrilege, he said, thou horse idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? What sacrilege? Sacrilege is desecration of holy things. Now, the Jews uh, were commanded to destroy the idols, the idolatry, the temples, and even the priests, the false gods, back when God was in their midst. 
And they carried that through. What Jews would occasionally do when they found a false temple that was weak, where there was not a politically strong situation, they would go in and they would destroy that false god, that false temple. Now, God told them not to carry any of it home to destroy it. In other words, if there were gold in there, they would destroy the gold. They were not to take it home. But what had happened in these modern times, when Jesus was speaking, is the Jews would go into a place and destroy it and take the rich and valuable objects home and sell them or melt them down. And so it became an industry to hire a group of mercenary soldiers to go in and raise a temple somewhere, a heathen temple, and carry off the valuables and pay the soldiers and make a profit. Now we find something like that alluded to over in the book of Acts chapter 19 verse 37. They were told in Deuteronomy 7.25, The graven images of their gods shall ye burn with fire. Thou shalt not desire the silver and the gold that is on them, and take it unto thee, lest thou be snared therein, for it is an abomination to the Lord thy God. In Acts 19.29, Gaius and Aristarchus uh, were with Paul in Macedonia, and they were in Ephesus, and they were preaching there, and the people got upset and carried Paul's companions into the amphitheater there and were going to kill them. They were worshiping the god Diana. And Alexander comes out and he pleads on their behalf. He says, you men of Ephesus, in Acts 19.35, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of Ephesus is a worshiper of the great god Diana, son of the image which fell down from heaven? And he said, seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, you ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly. He says, for you have brought hither these men which are neither robbers of churches nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. So he says, you're wanting to kill these men. But he said, listen, these men have not robbed our churches. The word church would apply to their meeting place as well as the Christian meeting place. He said, these people have not come in here and desecrated our temples. They've not destroyed our idols, our, our statues. They've left them alone. So there's no reason to kill them. Now, the fact that he mentioned that means that it must have been something that occurred that they were feared or that was a possibility of happening. Then in verse 23, he says, Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest not thou God? So was not God equally dishonored by their disobedience? Verse 24, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. Where was it written? 2 Samuel 12, 14. Howbeit because this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. So the Gentiles who were objects of derision, the Jews, were aware of this Jewish hypocrisy. Uh, Solomon speaking one message in public and living another life in private. So the Gentiles laughed. The Gentiles mocked at the Jewish God. They were not touched by the message that the Jews brought forth when they demanded righteousness. You see, the Gentiles felt no fear to blaspheme the name of Jehovah. So they blasphemed the name of Jehovah because Jehovah was an ineffectual God. He was not able to even deliver these hypocritical Jews from the sins for which they found others guilty. And so he says to these Jews, the name of God is blasphemed by Gentiles by the way you represent the laws of God to these heathen people. And you know, it's true today among Christians. Many times the name of God's blasphemed. I've been out witnessing and had someone say to me, they said, I know people that go down to your church and I live just as good as they do. I know people down there. I've, I've been out drinking with some of them. I've sold pot or bought pot. 
I've had people tell me that. Listen, when somebody tells you that, you just might as well go home. It's too late to witness to them. When they have been affected by someone that claims to be a Christian in that way, they're going to laugh at your religion. It's going to have no power whatsoever. Then in 25, he said, For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. He's saying to the Jew, Your circumcision you got on your eighth day is profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Now that would have caused them to rear up in anger. He said to these Jews that if you keep the law, then your circumcision is valuable. If you don't keep the law, your circumcision means nothing. Now I know from the Jews I spoke with in Jerusalem, they wouldn't go along with that. And then he says, therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, that's a Gentile, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? He said, now, if a circumcised Jew doesn't keep the law and his circumcision is counted as uncircumcision, then it would follow that. If an uncircumcised Gentile does keep the righteousness of the law, then his uncircumcision would be counted like it was circumcision. Now, circumcision and baptism don't have an exact parallel by any means, but let me just try to help you understand it by bringing it, putting it this way. He would say, to someone, listen, if you obey the law of God, then your baptism is good. It's valuable. But he said, on the other hand, if there's someone who's not baptized and they obey the law of God, then they're going to be counted as if they were baptized. And you'll be counted as if you were not. That's not an exact parallel, but you understand the point that he's making. He's saying your circumcision means nothing unless it's followed up by obedience to the law. And then he goes on to say, and shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, in other words, you're naturally born uncircumcised, shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by letter and circumcision dost transgress the law. Now he's really rallying the Jew up. Now he said, listen, if this uncircumcision, which is a natural state, if the uncircumcised Gentile actually does what's written in your law, even though he never heard of your law, if he does it, he says God's going to count him as circumcised and then God is going to allow him to judge you, this uncircumcised Gentile who never had the law. God's going to allow him to judge you, a circumcised Jew who has the law, because he's superior to you when he does what's actually written in the law, even though he never saw the law. He says, verse 28, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. So he says circumcision is not to God just an outward cutting. He said to God circumcision is something that occurs in the heart. See Deuteronomy 10.16 says this. Listen to it now. De this is not in the book of Romans. This is in Deuteronomy. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be not stiff-necked. So God tells the Jew way back in the Old Testament that that circumcision was supposed to go all the way to the heart. Now circumcision cut away unnecessary skin which covered the male member. And he said in the same way you've got a fleshly body that covers your soul. 
And your soul that's within needs to overcome the flesh that's on the outside. And so just as the outer foreskin is cut away from the male members, so your body of flesh needs to be cut away so that the spirit that's on the inside can take dominance over the flesh. So it's about the death of the fleshly body that circumcision is a picture of. New Testament circumcision is God putting this outer body to death so that the Spirit of God that's on the inside can bring forth life so that there can be a divine conception so that the seed of the Word of God can take root in the human soul and can spring forth and bring forth much fruit. So circumcision was a picture in the natural flesh of that which God wanted to occur in the spirit realm. So he said, listen, if, if you've got the sign in the flesh, but you don't have reality in the spirit realm, he said, then I'm going to count your flesh as uncircumcised. Because the real heart of circumcision is what occurs in the spirit, not what occurs in the outer fleshly body. So he said, God is going to count that Gentile as circumcised. He's going to count him as obedient. He's going to count him as right and righteous if he does by nature those things he sees in the law. And he's going to count you as none of that. He's going to count you as uncircumcised, a lost, damned heathen if you don't obey the law. So the bottom line here is not believing the gospel. Paul is still dealing with one concept and that's obeying what's in the law. He's using this to root that Jew out and say to him, you trust in the law, but I want to tell you something. The law you trust in, Jesus said, you trust in Moses. It's Moses that condemns you. He said, I don't need to condemn you because the very law you trust in condemns you. It judges you. It exposes your sinful condition. Verse 29. He said, what advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? So the Jew says, okay, look, Paul, the way you're preaching... If what you say is true, then it doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or not. I mean, if, if all it takes is doing what's in the law, what difference does it make whether or not you're circumcised? Basically, their, their argument is, Paul, what you say cannot be true because if it was, then it was nonsense act for God to command us to be circumcised. If circumcision has no meaning in itself, then it's an irrelevant act. Now, people argue that day. They say, well, the way you talk, baptism has no effect at all. The way you talk, you don't even need to be baptized. If what you say is true, then you can be saved. doesn't matter whether you're baptized or not. That's the argument we hear today. Now, God commanded them to be circumcised, but their thoughts are that it was an unnecessary commandment, if what Paul said was true. He says, what advantage is there in being a Jew? What profit of circumcision? He said, much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. What's he saying is this. What profit is there being a Jew? Because you had the opportunity that no one else had to receive the word of God. For what if some did not believe? What if some Jews didn't believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? The faith of God is that body of revealed truth, the gospel message. The argument is this, and Jews use it today. They say, see, Jesus was not our Messiah because did any of the Jews believe on him? Jesus was not our Messiah. How could Messiah come and we still be here waiting on him? Does the Jewish nation accept him as Messiah? No, he's a Gentile Messiah. He's not our Messiah. Their argument is that since the main body of Jews didn't accept Jesus, therefore he couldn't have been the Messiah. He says, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. So Paul says this. He said, no, just because some didn't believe, that doesn't make the offer 
of no effect. He said, let them be liars. Let God be true. Now, we're going to stop there. Then we'll stop on verse 4, and we'll begin in verse 5 when we come back next week.